biggest beneficiaries in terms of how you direct your portfolio are going to be to price makers, not price takers. And that can be in the bond and equity market, by the way. It's not, it's not exclusive to one part of the asset market curve. Uh, those companies that control their costs most effectively and can maintain their margins most effectively. And that, by the way, isn't actually necessarily sector by sector. There are still going to be some fantastic technology companies that can maintain their pricing. Now this is the Embark Pod, a series by Embark Group, bringing together industry leaders and commentators to discuss and debate the future of the industry. Now for the 10th in the series, we've got Peter Toogood, CIO at Embark Group with us once again to discuss what's surely the defining economic issue of the moment, the return of high inflation. Peter, welcome back. Um, let me... Let me just outline really what, what's happening. I mean, this is be your job, but in broad terms, energy prices surging, the cost of living's increasing, inflation's rising at the fastest rate in 30 years. Consumers are clearly worried. Should investors be worried? How long is it going to last? What can they do to stay the course? We're going to look at all that. So, Peter, let me kick this off by asking you, I suppose, a key question. Is the impact of inflation we've seen on global markets here to stay? More inflation than we have had previously, Roger, would be the, I suppose, coward's answer to the question, but also the reality. Um, there was a lot of disinflationary forces for, for the previous, really, three decades, in truth. I mean, it started in the 80s. You know, the deflationary forces were uh, China, the emergence of China, North Asia, um, their ability to send us cheap goods, et cetera, et cetera, did matter enormously. You also had um, the, the, the wage bill um, because of competitive forces due to migration, due to the ability for labor to move around, something that was very much absent uh, really in any previous period. Um, was also another deflationary force. Those largely started actually reversing before we got uh, to COVID, which is the real um, issue of the uh, much higher level of inflation we have today. So that's to some extent the demographics in China, um, the Make America Great Again uh, trend within the US, uh, the, the, the the climate change, I think, does have an impact on, on costs. That was happening before for COVID. Those, those are the things that meant this decade is definitely going to be talked about as higher in terms of inflation than previous decades. Added to that, you've now got the supply impairment, which is what it actually represents from COVID, which, which has really, really, really caused uh, great challenges in, in relation to how people uh, uh, insource their goods, uh, how they receive uh, their global supply chains are just in time. All those things go wrong when you can't be just in time. You shut factories, you can't be just in time inventory management anymore. So a lot of the really big issues have been uh, linked to supply chain impairment. And I think that they, they really aren't resolved yet. I mean, when China chooses to have yet a, another COVID lockdown due to a zero, poli zero COVID policy, that means you get a persistence in these supply chain challenges. It's not a demand issue. It is very much a supply chain issue, and, and that's why you've got this, and certainly right now, uh, a considerably higher inflation issue. You could then make the point that the energy price issues um, are, are linked to a degree to, to, to the capex spend in the last few years in, in what is fossil fuels, which, lest we forgot, still remind uh, power 80% of our energy needs. Uh, and that's now going to be exacerbated, obviously, by the overdependence that Europe has got on Russian energy and the desire to withdraw from that, given what's going on in the conflict in Ukraine. So a lot of things have come together uh, to, to cause what is just a general 
generalized uh, higher level of inflation, which is not, I would imagine, going to stay at eight to ten percent. But you can look at saying will be substantially higher uh, for the for the balance of this decade. Okay, so that's very interesting. You're talking about the balance of the decade. This is a a lengthy period uh, during which we're going to have to adjust to what's there. I suppose, is it going to get better over that decade gradually? Or uh, are we going to see further shocks? I mean, these are the impossible questions, but ones that investors have to think about. Yeah, deglobalization is a reality. We've we've gone back to the world, uh, Roger, that you and I remember uh, of, I'm afraid, um, Sonsu with various countries again. We're back to the Cold War with Russia. There is an increasing economic Cold War with China. Um, I think the Americans are fed up uh, in their in their minds with uh, enriching China to allow it to be the second largest economy in the world by, 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 by basically funding it, which is what they've really been doing, and they've worked that out. Um, so it's, it's that deglobalization which is going to cause, I think, the substantively the, the biggest single factor. It is going to be a, a, a long-term driver. Labour itself is is going to demand because the um, higher wages uh, they have been paid in real terms. Very little. It's only the last couple of two or three years, actually, prior to that, um, a little bit as well. Where for twenty years they got no pay rises in real terms in places like the US and indeed here. Um, that is reversing. Labour is demanding a bigger share. Uh, of the pie. You've got retirees, lots more in the US uh, happening and post-COVID in particular, people reflecting on their lifestyles and what they want to achieve in their lives, meaning the labour pool is is, is shrinking. China's demographics are are very poor. This this is not a good thing. Uh, Either Japan's have been like this way for years. I mean, we've got negative population growth in most of the developed world now. Uh, In Europe, way below two uh, replacement in terms of you're not making two of yourselves as a as a couple anymore. Uh, all these things really do matter, and that means Labour's definitely going to have a rising piece of the pie. That has direct implications for uh, to financial assets. It means costs are going up, and the biggest cost still remains the biggest variable cost remains Labour. So yeah, that 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 is another reason why one has to think that the rate of inflation is higher and why it is more permanent. And I mean, uh, we're clearly at an inflection point from what you're saying. And and I suppose one always looks at these kind of things, the old Chinese uh, cliched expression, a, a crisis produces opportunity. There will, I guess, be winners and beneficiaries. You already mentioned Labour. But where are who is going to gain from this? Well, I think Labour will be the biggest gainer, actually, potentially, <laughs> um, which is, by the way, to be heralded, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, we, if trickle down is a reality, it's nice that we're trying to make it one. So the beneficiary will initially post well, will will we'll should and will be skilled labour to, to be candid and blunt. There then will be labour itself. But the biggest beneficiaries in terms of how you direct your portfolio are going to be to price makers, not price takers, and that can be in the bond and equity market. By the way, it's not it's not exclusive to one part of the asset market curve. Uh, those companies that control their costs most effectively and can maintain their margins most effectively, and that, by the way, isn't actually necessarily sector by sector. There are still going to be some fantastic technology companies that can maintain their pricing. I would use Microsoft as a good example of a company that can maintain its pricing. It may be too expensive, and that's a complete a different debate, but it's still going to be able to maintain its pricing power. So it's not going to be anything other than I suspect the following with rising costs, rising cost of capital, which we've sort of got now, it's already going on. The companies that are, know how to manage the balance sheet, it doesn't necessarily mean they're very unlevered, it means they're good at managing the balance sheet, but can make it make prices, not take prices, and actually are probably at the moment for margin, for, at the margin are, are dividend paying. You're probably going to have a bias to the income or in 
rotated funds. If you look at them, they've already been doing very well. Partly that's because they tend to be parked more in value than euphemistic growth, um, but predominantly because they have the discipline of paying the dividends. So that's the sort of area you're looking into where you do sort of blend uh, the, the version of value with a version of uh, uh, the discipline of, of paying out an income to your shareholders. And if you look at both bond and equity markets, that, that's what's being rewarded um, in, in this phase. Now, that has at the moment led itself into being more stagflationary. So your energy companies and your utilities and your real estate has to some extent outperforms certainly the growth your longer duration asset um, tech in particular but also consumer discretionary and others you've had to be very wary of price points as well so it's a blend and combination of thinking about the company its price its ability to control its balance sheet and, and and actually manage its balance sheet and its ability to retain its margins and therefore pass it through to the customer and they're they're the kind of companies that typically through difficult times and we can create a stagflation scenario, an inflation scenario, or even a deflation scenario for the next 12 to 24 months. We could come to do each of those, by the way. Um, and, and, and in any of those three scenarios, those are the kind of companies that are still going to be where you want to be, I suspect. What you are not going to return to is the froth of the last three or four years. Very simply put, because monetary conditions are tightening. Yeah, and part of that, of course, is also what uh, is going on in governments. Governments are responding to this. There'll be regulatory response. We've already, you know, hear talk of potentially uh, an, a, a windfall tax uh, on certain energy firms. So, I mean, I suppose that's all got to be factored in. The governments around the world are not going to be completely passive on this, very likely. And that has to be a factor, I guess, in investment decisions, too. Um, yeah, they're going to. Uh, that's the issue against utilities. So utilities is somewhere you would typically go if you were trying to think of someone who can maintain pricing power. But windfall taxes are notionally, and I use this with um, a straight face. Um, it's it's one of those ones where you uh, think, mm, okay, it's it it's a windfall tax, but it's not permanent. It's not a permanent impairment and higher rate of tax. At the end of the day, one has to tread very carefully with these companies. What are you taxing? What is the windfall amount exactly? What is the excess profit discussed? Even working that out is a challenge. But if you do do it, you do it once off, not continuously. Otherwise, you're saying there's a permanently high rate of corporation tax for those companies. Well, if they go into loss, does that mean they can claim it back? Peter, yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's a very key uh, issue. Well, I mean, it's, it's politics, a fascinating isn't it? argument, isn't it? Um, what they can do is be pressurised into more capex, which I think you know is quite clearly what they're going to do. And if I was running BP Shell et al, I would think very seriously about how I represent my efforts in renewables, et cetera, because it's going to be a very smart idea to look like you're really doing your best to solve the crisis rather than benefit from it. OK, well, we're talking about uh, energy there to some extent. And I mean, that brings us, I suppose, to one key point in all this. You and I uh, and many others have, of course, been talking about the growth of ESG investment in recent years. And one can't help feel that what's going on, the rising inflation is inevitably going to have an effect on ESG investment. I mean, last year saw record-breaking growth in ESG investment in the UK, impact startups recording £2 billion of investments. We're not going to see that again, are we? 
No, you're not going to get the blue sky and it's going to go back to the idea that actually the drivers of this is likely to be BP and Shell. I hate to tell the most ardent ESG fans, but the reality of the situation is those that are in the best position to do this are the ones that can, can transition the economy most effectively. They are the ones with the big balance sheets. They are the ones with the big bank accounts. I would also argue the government needs to do more than just say, oh, it's just down to the private sector. Um, nuclear power stations are a very long term build and they need government and private money. So it's a combination of of both, Roger, that's going to solve this problem. Um, ESG investment in its own right, uh, every company ultimately is going to have to report on its, its positioning and change accordingly. So I think the most interesting aspect of the first wave of ESG, which is what I call what we've had, really, this, we've had to go at this a few, a few times in the last few decades, is you're, you're going to have standardised reporting to a degree on, on carbon footprints. Most, governed, most companies who are listed are well governed anyway. Everyone seems to miss this. If they're, not, if they're listed and badly governed, they tend to get frowned upon these days. So I think a lot of the issues in relation to G and S are always being resolved by being listed. And I think a much greater focus on those things is, is is worthwhile. But the E part is going to be very much, once you've got the standardised reporting, we'll all be able to assess how good or bad a company is at transitioning. And at the end of the day, that's what we're dealing with here. Most companies are changing their footprints and the way they operate. And it's going to be a matter of time. You can't do it tomorrow morning. It doesn't work that quickly. It's just not that simple. But the, some of the most effective companies that are going to be able to take advantage of this are going to be the current incumbents. So the engagement process and the push process Back to my point, if you're making excess profits, make sure you're plowing it into renewables. And I think they're looking at 60 to 70 percent, most of these companies, of their capex is going to be going towards renewables in the future. So I think that's that's a big number and that's that's a big tick for the transitioning moment. But what about investor motivation, particularly on the E of the ESG? I mean, will there not come a point where people simply say, well, that's for the better times. Uh, for the current times, we just go where the profit is and have less regard for those kind of issues. Well, that's that's again arguing that BP is the wrong place to be. I don't believe in exclusion. I think is utter nonsense. The world is 80% powered by fossil fuel. Better that we get a much more efficient version of that in the next five to 10 years. Energy efficiency is quite frankly a much bigger priority than renewable creation. I think if we could use energy more efficiently while we make this transition, we'd be far better off. Um, I'm the advocate for the lights being turned off, um, carbon being captured where you can, and trying to make cars do 200 miles per gallon, not 30. All of which is perfectly plausible, by the way. I'll quote the head of Bosch Engineering, who has actually said and stated to the German government, could we please spend more time getting cars to do 200 miles a gallon than converting them all into electric cars? He said, because at the end of the day, all a battery is, is another way of storing it. It's still powered by fossil fuels after all. So I think there's a lot of logic to efficiency. And I think that's where a lot of um, environmental good could be done in the near term to make a difference in offset is the focus on efficiency. Um, and I think there is an increasing recognition of that. You know, insulate the house. Do use the solar panels if you can. Do do the heat pump, etc. All those things are going to make a difference. OK, moving to the more general questions that are in investors' minds at this point. I mean, it's obviously in all things economic, it's the short and the long term. I mean, what are the what are the kind of ways, first of all, in the short term that investors should be thinking right now faced with the kind of inflationary pressures we've got? I think it is exactly the playbook of the last six months. Nothing's really changing here. You've got to think that the world stays inflationary. I mean, even the central bankers are admitting it's Q4 before we see a serious change in, in the inflation number. And that means you do still stick with the value 
end the market value here typically means those companies that can maintain their pricing power or those companies that have been unloved. That has been up to now, the energy companies, the financials as good examples. Healthcare has been a reasonable place to hide. And it is an element of hiding in this, Roger, because we're dealing with a market where inflation is higher. Therefore, I'm afraid earnings are discounted at a much higher rate. And the longer your earnings go out, the more scary it all gets. So it's a sort of anti long duration growth call and a very pro more immediate gratification call and that does lead you back into the areas of um, it is very much in that sort of energy slash unloved financials slash companies that can pay you out so you end up with a combination of some value um, and some income and for me it remains the same you should still be sticking at income funds I still think for them that for the now and for the potential scenarios in the next 12 to 24 months an income orientation is going to be the most rewarding wherever you are that could be Japan through to the US I still think it's a good place to be the ongoing um, derating of the growth sector uh, the blue sky uh, suddenly looking rather darker and the more the, the the desire to look for more immediate gratification in the form of a dividend is going to continue to be a trend and when the head of the federal bank you know the federal reserve when jerome powell says himself i have no idea what the economy looks like in 12 months time his words not mine you've got to be a bit more cautious about how you think about investing because you can create multiple scenarios in the next 12 months best way to be defensive is to, is to stick to those companies that pay you out what about the strategic, the 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 decade long or decades long potentially uh, picture? How does that change? I mean, do you see major trends? For example, where do you see China in all this? Where do you see the tech sector further going forward? Where will the energy companies be in in the end of a decade? What are those yeah. sort of pictures like? Well, I think so. The so if you go sector by sector, the energy sector will have transitioned. Um, and, and and it will be in a <clears throat> different place. In the meantime, there is clearly been opportunities to to benefit um, from um, a deeply unloved sector, the most discounted sector in history a year ago versus the S&P itself, as an example, using the US market. That has to some extent closed, but they're still great dividend payers, so hard to dismiss them. And I think in the decade of rising costs, they're still going to be able to pass a lot of those costs on the form of profits to the rest of us. So yes, I think you're going to look at energy. I think you've also got to look at anything in the real asset space. So I, I, I think the the demand picture isn't necessarily a parlous, but again, it's back to the point, the capital discipline of not opening up new mines, of not opening up new oil fields, gas fields, et cetera, means that that real asset space is going to be in reasonable shape for a good period of time. Um, and then you revisit tech. Tech is a combination of blue sky cyclical and long-term winners. And I think it's just a case that both of those got very expensive. And Moore's law says that, you know, you'll recycle every 10 years with a notable exception, um, honorable exception of Microsoft. Most of the companies of 20 years ago, the Cisco's, the Dell's and others have become relatively muted in what they are. And I suspect, and I've always thought the likes of Amazon and, and, and Meta will be the same. They came and they went. Um, and I continue to think that you just end up looking at the longer term winners. And I suspect Google. Um, as we all know, as Alphabet might also be a winner. So you've got to start differentiating um, between the winners and what it means to be a disruptor. And I think this is the decade, Roger, put simply of applying the technology, not just being technology itself. So how does a company act like Amazon is going to be more of an interesting theme than are you Amazon in the next five to 10 years? And that could be 
any kind of company. So the, the thematic you're asking me to look at is how does a company control its own ecosystem, control its own expression of how it looks externally to the marketplace? How does it talk to the market? How does it control its costs? And how does it just expand its margins each year? And that leads you back to some of the branded stuff as well. I mean, the likes of L'Oreal and others are very expensive at the moment, consumer discretionary they are. But the long term win is because unless we think we're going to go completely reversing the sort of capitalist system we have got, the rich are still rich. They're the ones who buy these things. People are still aspiring. Nothing has changed in China. People still want to aspire. The rich will still continue to extend. The Russian oligarchs are a very minor part of the um, of, of the wealth curve in practice. Um, I think those whole trends haven't changed either. So, again, it's sticking to those price maker kind of companies, which I would put the branded goods and consumer discretionary space as one of them. The They'll always struggle in a recession, but at the end of the day, um, rich people don't have recessions, really, in truth. Um, and we are dealing with less than 5% of the population normally of these kind of companies' targets. That's another area of interest. The financials remains difficult. Um, I think the incumbent banks and their utilities, I think they are just dividend payers. I don't see why you pay more than the price to book of one for them. I think they aren't in the um, new areas of activity, and it's difficult to see how they're going to get there. Um, you've changed the dynamic in many cases for financials. Um, and you've got to look at different ways of accessing financials uh, than just going to buy a plain vanilla bank. Some are doing a very good job. JP Morgan in the US is probably a good example of a company that really is making strides in being old and new at the same time. So it's going to be case by case. Some of the uh, Scandinavian banks have been very good as well. But again, you have to be much more selective. Uh, it's it's not as simple as, oh, I just buy that sector. And healthcare has always been the same thing. It's always a good residual of a nice dividend payer that through the cycle tends to reward you for being there. So that's not going to change. I think the trend change is going to be the blue sky is gone. The free money party is over. Forget the profitless tech rubbish. I know that will come back again another day, but that's a busted flush like it was in 2000. You're going to derate the NASDAQ area, the, the growth sectors, they're coming back down. Is it terminal for them? No, never is. But some of the winners will become losers and some of the winners will stay winners. And I would personally continue to flag Microsoft and Alphabet as the two obvious ones that are still going to stay of that FANG sector there. And I suspect Netflix just gets bought. Right. Well, you've set out the uh, set out the field very nicely for us, Peter. Let me, as we come towards the end of this discussion, ask about the people which we are clearly concerned about at Ember, which is the advisors and the people they advise. I mean, how do you navigate this this field that you've set out? I think you just have to think uh, the number one would be yield. I mean, I, I know just before we're uh, coming on to the podcast, Roger, you know, I'm discussing a fund I've just seen and, and it's a, a high yield fund, a credit fund, but it's now yielding 7%. And that's because there's been such a shift in high yield spreads, you know, the, the, the difference between what you get from a government bond and, and a high yield corporate is towards seven. That's that's getting towards cheap. So answer number one, think about the yield for the client. Seven percent is a decent yield. Could there be some capital losses in a deep recession in there? Yes, but you're still going to get seven, probably then eight, probably then nine percent. And of course, it always reverses unless we think we've cancelled the cycle. Number two, dividend paying funds. I don't think it's going to change. I would stick with income for the next six to 12 months at a minimum. They're still going to clip you four to five percent, depending on what area you're in. The US less so, um, but you can go to Asia and get four to five percent as well, by the way income yielding funds there. So I think stick with that. You're going to get some reversals in growth here. There's going to be chances to trade. One might even be coming now, but they're going to be very short, furious trades, and we're all going to go 
back to ah, monetary conditions are tighter, shorter duration assets. So I think the very short term answer for an advisor is to advise the clients to think about what is actually the income coming off these things. That may still be total return, but they're the safest bets in this environment. And then looking at credit, credit's on the way to getting towards a decent price. I mean, you're not cheap, cheap, but you're certainly the other side of the curve in terms of the 20 year averages, your likes of high yield investment grade are now you know, your 60th into 70th percentile of, of cheapness. So you're on the way. I'm not suggesting these are defensive, but you're buying them at a better point than you were six months ago even. So definitely that's where you've got to be somewhere and that's where you're going to have to be for the next period of time. And a lot of it's just going to be almost psychological, isn't it? Reassurance. I mean, when there are really stormy waters out there. You've got to at least keep the investors' confidence going apart from anything else. Well, they've, they've got to be somewhere. I mean, don't forget, uh, everyone does forget this, I think, that 90 plus percent of money is permanently fixed. It has to be invested. It's in pension funds. It's in institutions. You know, the Yale Endowment Fund can't disinvest. It may want to do its investment differently, but they've still got to invest. So the money stays long. So we've all got to see in the end that at big financial markets are rewarded for lots of different reasons to do with retirement and capitalism itself, etc. But it's not a case of you don't stay involved. It's a case of if you're going to be involved because you have to be involved most of the time for now, caution pays, just be sensible, focus on the yields, that's bond and equities, stick with that for the next, I would say next six to 12 months, while we work out if we're going to have inflation, stagflation and or deflation, because the truth, Roger, is that no one really knows if the head of the Federal Reserve doesn't know, why should anyone else? Well, exactly. That, I guess, is what a lot of people will be saying. And there are, perhaps we should emphasise as we come towards the end, there are opportunities. There, there always are. Yes, there are. And I would I would think I would I would absolutely at the moment highlight the fact that you're on the percentile cheap of the of the credit and bond markets at this point. It's certainly looking a lot rosier than it was six months ago for, for that sector. Don't it's not a guarantee it's not going to deteriorate a hard landing in a recession end of this year into next year. We'll still cause some trauma in those, but you're at least now getting a, a, a decent reward for taking the risk. Whatever else, it's going to be interesting, Peter. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so much for being with us. That is pretty much it from this 10th episode of the Embark Pod, looking at that crucial issue of what inflation is going to do, both in the long term and in the short term, and how investors and advisors have to work on that. So my thanks to Peter for a, an amazing, fascinating discussion, some real insights there. Thanks to Peter Toogood, CIO at Embark. I'm going to be back with more episodes. I'm Roger Hearing. For now, thanks for listening and goodbye.